Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to continue our coverage of the war in Ukraine, this time with a view from Moscow. I'm joined by Crisis Group board member Andrei Kortonov. Andrei is the Director General of the Russian International Affairs Council. Andrei, it's probably not accurate to describe you as a long-term supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin, but you have been a sympathetic, if nuanced, defender of some aspects of his foreign policy over past years. Is that is that fair? Well, you know, I have always believed that independent scholars should be critical of uh, of the government because otherwise no one needs them if they simply echo uh, what the government says or what the government does. Uh, probably they have no right to exist. But of course, you know, generally speaking, I always tried uh, uh, to find uh, some logic and rationale in what Russia has been doing internationally. And so, Andrei, what we're going to try to do today is think through ways to de-escalate the conflict. That's going to be the focus of our discussion. But what I thought I'd start with, uh, if it's okay, is just to ask you a few questions about how things look from Moscow and dynamics in Russia to sort of set the stage for discussions on potential options to wind things back. So obviously, things don't seem to be going according to the Kremlin's plan in Ukraine. You know, as you've suggested before, the invasion has been much more difficult than the Kremlin appears to have expected. Far more Ukrainian resistance, a stronger Western response. How do you think that is resonating? Well, uh, uh, first of all, if you follow the official statements uh, coming uh, from the Russian government, uh, uh, they still maintain that uh, the military operation goes uh, according to schedule. Uh, since we have not seen this schedule, it's very difficult to judge whether it is right or wrong. Uh, but of course, I think anyone would agree that uh, there are at least uh, two major independent variables here which uh, might affect the operation. Uh, first of all, the resilience of the Ukrainian resistance and uh, we don't know what expectations uh, the Kremlin had uh, before it started the operation. Maybe the expectation was that uh, 
it would be something similar to the operation conducted uh, in Crimea eight years ago, and uh, this whole thing would end up with uh, very few casualties, with uh, very few shots fired. If uh, that was uh, the expectation, uh, it collided uh, with the reality because uh, Ukrainians uh, demonstrate the ability to resist. Uh, and uh, we see that, of course, on both sides, the death toll is rising. There is significant collateral damage inflicted upon the civilian population, and that should also be taken into account. And the second independent variable is exactly the Western reaction, because, of course, I can imagine that everybody in the Kremlin assumed that there would be some sanctions, but the scale of sanctions, I think that, of course, everybody in the Kremlin expected that there would be sanctions, but the size of the sanctions and the level of unity demonstrated by Western countries was surprising to me, at least, uh, and I can imagine that it was surprising uh, to uh, the Russian decision makers. So these are uh, two uh, independent variables that should affect the current thinking in the Kremlin. However, so far, I have seen uh, no inclination uh, to change the overall pattern of the operation. And uh, it is stated by Russian officials that uh, the military operation will uh, go on until uh, its goals are fully met. And uh, that implies that uh, Ukraine uh, should uh, be demilitarized uh, and uh, denazified, whatever it might mean. So these goals remain the same, uh, despite the fact that it seems that uh, the operation takes more time and effort uh, than it uh, was planned initially. Do you think the Russian army, I mean, initially, I think we, like others, sort of felt that the Russian army was pretty formidable. And yet, how do you think the protracted campaign, potentially involving urban fighting, which requires a lot more capable troops, fighting that could last for a long time, I mean, how do you think the Russian army could weather that? Well, I'm not a military expert, uh, but my guess is that uh, definitely uh, they would like to avoid urban warfare because uh, that will be very costly uh, for everybody. A lot of destruction, a lot of uh, civilian casualties. Uh, that's why they are negotiating these uh, humanitarian corridors right now for major cities like Kharkiv and uh, Mariupol and maybe even Kiev. So these are uh, clearly attempts uh, to avoid uh, these protracted uh, urban warfare. But uh, we should not underestimate the Ukrainian army either because uh, it is not as strong as the Russian army, but still it is uh, not what it was eight years ago. A lot of uh, modernization efforts uh, uh, have been done by the Ukrainian leadership. A lot of investments have gone into the armed forces. So it is really not a paper tiger. And uh, on top of that, on the Ukrainian side, uh, they have these units, uh, they call them volunteer battalions, which are somewhat separate uh, from the army, but uh, are very robust and very motivated uh, to fight uh, till the very end. Uh, so I think that uh, the Ukrainian capacity is significant. On top of that, uh, we now see that uh, there is a lot of uh, Western military aid coming to the country. And if we go back again to Moscow and, and Russia, I mean, outside the Kremlin, there seems to be support for the war. I think you mentioned uh, a few days ago that some polls suggest a 10 or 12 percent increase in support for President Putin himself. And on the one hand, that's normal, you know, this rallying around the flag. 
But on the other, you know, how much do Russians appreciate that the war isn't going according to plan? Well, first of all, we should keep in mind uh, that Russians receive uh, primarily information uh, that uh, they get uh, from governmental sources. A couple of independent uh, liberal media uh, like Echo Moskvi radio station, like uh, TV uh, channel Dost uh, were shut down. So they uh, have to rely on the information that they receive from state officials. Definitely the issue of how stable this support is remains open. I think it depends uh, on how much time the operation will take and uh, how much damage it will inflict on the civilian population, how many casualties uh, the Russian army will suffer. I think that it is always difficult uh, to maintain a high level of public support for a long period of time. Uh, so my guess is that it is uh, definitely uh, in the interest of the uh, Russian authorities uh, to complete this operation as fast as possible in order not to lose the public support. Uh, there are some demonstrations uh, uh, against uh, the operation in Russian cities. They are not that numerous, uh, but of course, uh, the number of people who protest might uh, grow if it evolves into a protracted conflict. And presumably, however tightly media is controlled, it's going to be very difficult to hide a lot of Russian casualties and even difficult to hide major destruction or fighting in Ukrainian cities. I think so. I think that you know, the Russian public uh, is definitely sympathetic to civilian losses uh, in Ukraine. I don't think that there are any major anti-Ukrainian feelings in Russia. It's not the Second World War. It's uh, not a war against a clear enemy. So I think that uh, if indeed uh, there is information about losses of civilian lives uh, that might have an impact on the Russian public opinion, we don't know at what uh, stage this support uh, might uh, start declining. But uh, definitely, uh, the longer the war lasts, the more difficult it is to maintain it. And how do people see these sanctions packages that the US, European countries have rolled out? Have they started to bite yet or are people not yet feeling the effects? Well, uh, I think those who operate with uh, uh, foreign currencies, of course, uh, see the uh, change in exchange rate. Uh, the national currency has already lost maybe 20 or 30 percent of its value in dollars or in euro. There are some uh, shortages, not major shortages, but definitely some of Western brands are leaving Russia. Uh, and that would also have an impact, especially on the middle class. Uh, those people uh, who do not consume foreign-made uh, goods uh, are not likely to experience the same uh, effect uh, of sanctions, uh, but uh, they will be affected later. That's also clear that uh, uh, sanctions uh, uh, will have uh, gradually increasing impact on the living standards. Uh, the uh, state officials are trying to present their own version of sanctions, and this version implies that uh, the West uh, would have uh, enforced sanctions anyway, no matter what Russia does or what Russia does not do. And these sanctions are targeted not just on the Russian leadership, but rather on the Russian population. Uh, for instance, you know, this uh, cancellation of uh, air traffic between Russia and uh, Western cities and uh, some uh, closures of particular stores with uh, Western uh, goods. Uh, I think that uh, 
the official Russian uh, propaganda implies that uh, these sanctions uh, are driven uh, by Russophobia rather than by anything else. And Andrei, I, I appreciate it's hard to generalize, but do you think this is something that many Russians will accept, that sanctions aren't the result of what President Putin's done? I think that some of them will. Uh, definitely those uh, who uh, tend uh, to trust official media would uh, buy this story. Not everybody, of course, uh, there is an opposition. Maybe uh, these days the opposition is not very vocal, but there is an opposition and uh, they would come up with their own narrative, which is clearly very different from uh, the narrative coming uh, from the Kremlin. Uh, but so far, the opposition is fragmented. It is uh, small. It's not uh, uh, that articulate. It doesn't have access uh, to major media outlets. So uh, the the government uh, still controls the information agenda. Uh, whether it is able to maintain this control uh, for a long period of time remains an open question, of course. And Andrei, you mentioned that for now, the Kremlin's messaging is largely the same. But how do you think President Putin, leaving aside the messaging, is going to respond to things going badly or, or the risk that people, that Russians start realizing things are going badly? I mean, we've already seen an escalation in the bombardment of Ukrainian cities, which he seemed to uh, have hoped initially to avoid. Um, of course, you know, every uh, conflict has its own logic and its own inertia. And uh, I think that depending on the situation on the ground, uh, you might see new approaches to this operation. If it happens, uh, definitely the Russian public is likely to be split. Uh, some would uh, still rally around the flag saying that uh, it's my country, right or wrong, and I should uh, stand by my country, at least uh, during the conflict. Others would say that uh, it's uh, probably too much, uh, and uh, we don't want uh, to uh, align with everything that uh, the leadership is doing, uh, and uh, they might have second thoughts about what is going on. Uh, but we are not yet at this point. I think that still, you know, just, I think, 11 days of the conflict, it's too early to analyze uh, the Russian public opinion in dynamics. And could we sort of say a word or two about the Kremlin's decision-making? I mean, it seems, Andrei, that sort of fundamental assumptions in the Kremlin about the war have been very quickly proven wrong, that the invasion would be easy, that Ukrainians would welcome Russian troops, whereas in fact there's enormous hostility in much of Ukraine. If President Putin hoped the intervention would split NATO, it's had the opposite effect. What does sort of this miscalculation tell us about decision-making within the Russian leadership? You know, um, we do not really know what calculations uh, were made in the Kremlin on the eve of the decision. But uh, we do know that uh, the decision is made in a very narrow circle of people around the president. Uh, the decision-making process uh, in Russia is highly centralized. Uh, so there are, I think, only a few people who might have a say. And uh, that uh, clearly might create a problem if uh, there are limits uh, on the sources of information that the top leadership can use in making decisions uh, that uh, creates risks of blunders and mistakes. Uh, it's hard to tell. As, as I told you earlier, this logic uh, is something 
which I cannot really understand because I don't think that uh, you need to be a very sophisticated person to assess the inevitable side effects uh, of such a decision. Andrei, could I just ask you one more thing about the Kremlin's calculations and asking it just because it's getting quite a bit of traction at the moment in Western media, and that's the risk of Russia using nuclear weapons, even if what are known as sort of tactical nuclear weapons. Um, I think one of the people that you alluded to, the small circle around President Putin is uh, Nikolai Patrushev, uh, now head of the National Security Council. I think as long as a decade ago, he is sort of on record saying that Russia could launch a preemptive strike, nuclear strike, to repel an aggression, not only in a large scale, but also in a regional or even local war. How do you assess the danger of the conflict escalating into something where we see nuclear weapons being used? Well, my take is that uh, the Russian leadership uh, is concerned about uh, a possible uh, NATO involvement uh, in the conflict uh, beyond uh, supplying Ukraine uh, with weapons. Uh, for instance, uh, there are discussions in the West uh, about uh, no-fly zone that could be imposed over the territory of Ukraine. And of course, uh, actions like uh, this one uh, would uh, mean uh, in the eyes of the Russian leadership that NATO countries uh, which uh, are involved in this operation uh, become direct participants to the conflict. And in this case, Russia might uh, retaliate uh, with uh, all the means that it has at its disposal. So from this viewpoint, uh, unfortunately, escalation is something that we cannot rule out. Uh, I think that uh, such statements are made primarily to deter innate engagement. Uh, and uh, I don't think that uh, any nuclear weapons are likely to be used if NATO stays outside of this conflict. But uh, this is something that, of course, uh, we do not know, and this is something that uh, will evolve uh, in course uh, of this conflict. And so Russian and Ukrainian officials have met a couple of times since the Russian invasion. And according to some accounts, those meetings seem to go better than expected. But there's still been no real agreement on anything except the humanitarian corridors that you talked about earlier. And even those haven't really worked, I think, according to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, that's because Russia will only let civilians flee into Russia or Belarus, not into other parts of Ukraine. How do you see these talks as they're going at the moment? Well, I think the only good thing about the talks is that uh, they still take place. Uh, and hopefully, uh, at least uh, on the issue of humanitarian corridors, there might be some progress. Uh, though, as you rightly pointed out, it is uh, very difficult in itself. Uh, and of course, uh, the Russian side accuses uh, Ukrainians that uh, they are blocking these corridors, uh, that they are not letting people out. Uh, Ukrainians uh, accuse Russians of uh, uh, you know, being too selective. Uh, uh, in, uh, uh, so I think that uh, both sides uh, accuse uh, each other uh, with uh, being uh, not very consistent in uh, implementing uh, this agreement on uh, humanitarian corridors. But uh, beyond humanitarian corridors, uh, uh, not a lot uh, of agreements uh, have been reached. And I think that uh, the reason for that is that uh, the two sides uh, have uh, diametrically opposed visions of the terms of this agreement. As far as the Kremlin is concerned, I think. Uh, 
the position implies that they should discuss the terms of surrender. And uh, of course, the Russian authorities insist uh, on uh, Ukraine dropping the idea of uh, joining NATO. It insists on demilitarization of Ukraine and uh, what they call denazification of Ukraine, which implies a rather radical reset of the Ukrainian political system. Uh, when you ask Ukrainians uh, what do they expect uh, from this uh, ceasefire and what are their terms uh, for for an agreement, they would say that, uh, first of all, it should be complete and unconditional withdrawal of Russian troops from the territory of Ukraine. Uh, Russia should recall uh, its diplomatic recognition of the Donetsk and Lugansk republics. Uh, uh, maybe Russia should uh, return Crimea back to Ukraine. Uh, and uh, Russia should uh, also pay uh, reparations for the damage that uh, it has already inflicted on Ukraine. So when you have uh, two positions uh, like that, it is very difficult uh, to imagine how you can uh, come to a common denominator. Uh, moreover, I think one of the problems is that apparently both sides believe that time might make their positions uh, stronger. The Kremlin counts on uh, its military superiority and uh, it hopes uh, to uh, get uh, uh, more advances, uh, military advances, uh, while uh, Ukraine apparently uh, believes that the international support might grow and uh, this support uh, will maintain the resilience uh, of uh, the Ukrainian resistance. Uh, so here we are, we have very different approaches and uh, I don't want to sound cynical, but the trick is that uh, if we want uh, to reach an agreement, uh, we should offer the sides something that they can interpret uh, as their victories that Zelensky would claim that uh, he has won uh, and uh, he will appear as a victorious uh, president of a country which resisted uh, a foreign aggression and uh, Putin should have something that would uh, allow him to explain to his constituency that uh, the goals that he set uh, for this operation have been met. So it is very difficult. Uh, I think it is not impossible with some degree of flexibility, but uh, it's tough. And Andre, as you say, uh, you know, a compromise looks a long way off uh, now when we can talk in a moment about what might change calculations in, in Moscow or Kiev. But if you were to think of such a compromise, you know, something that would allow both sides, as you say, to claim a win, what would that even look like, given some of what President Putin says he wants? I mean, in the past... Andrei, you've spoken of some of President Putin's red lines perhaps being a bit more pink than others. So if you think of, of the demands at the moment, there's the, as you say, the so-called denazification, which is in essence a code for a change of government, a new ruling elite in Kiev that's friendlier to Moscow. There's the recognition of the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, even beyond areas that were held by separatists. There's the recognition of Crimea as part of Russia. Um, there's, of course, Ukraine not joining NATO, its army not being trained by NATO member states and not joining the European Union. On which of these do you see President Putin potentially being prepared to give some ground? Well, it's hard to tell, of course, uh, uh, and uh, a lot will depend on the situation on the ground. But uh, my guess, and, uh, I have to say that, of course, I might be dead wrong here, as I was many times uh, since the beginning of this conflict. But my wild guess is that the most important trend line is still uh, 
Ukraine's accession to NATO uh, and the military technical cooperation with the North Atlantic Alliance. Look, for example, at Moldova, a country that uh, neighbors Ukraine. Uh, the new leadership of Moldova, uh, led by President Maya Sandu, uh, doesn't hide its intention uh, to uh, get closer to the European Union and ultimately to join the European Union. Uh, they have uh, a political system which is very different uh, from what uh, we have here in Russia. Uh, they are trying to fight corruption. They are trying to get rid of oligarchs. Uh, so they have their own trajectory of political development, which is not questioned by Moscow. But uh, they are very cautious not to provoke the Kremlin. Uh, and uh, therefore, they uh, always uh, emphasize the neutral status of their country. Uh, Moldova is neutral and it will remain neutral as long as uh, this leadership is in charge. Uh, so I can imagine, but again, this is my personal uh, position that uh, probably uh, if uh, Ukraine drops uh, its intention to join the North Atlantic Alliance, other issues uh, can be negotiated. And uh, of course, uh, it's not uh, the only demand uh, that the Kremlin has, uh, but I think that uh, there might be a degree of flexibility on other issues. Uh, it is impossible to imagine that uh, any leadership uh, of uh, Ukraine uh, would uh, gladly recognize the independence of the Donetsk and Lugansk republics. I, I cannot imagine how it can happen. I think that uh, if Zelensky uh, decides to go along this way, he is likely to be out of power very soon. So politics is the art of uh, uh, possible, and uh, it means that uh, whoever uh, works on the Russian position should uh, look at the realities uh, uh, in the uh, Ukrainian political life and should base expectations on these realities. Otherwise, they will continue fighting. Wouldn't many people in Western capitals say that Ukrainian neutrality was already on the table before the invasion, that uh, behind the scenes, French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, that they would have reassured President Putin about this in their various meetings with him before the crisis, uh, that even at some point in Ukraine's recent history, you know, it has uh, declared itself to be neutral. Wouldn't people argue that that's already been on the table for President Putin? Well, I'm not in a position to judge uh, what President Putin thinks of that, but uh, I always believed that this neutral status of Ukraine should be based uh, on the decision made by the Ukrainians themselves, not by the West. Uh, the West can say that we will not let Ukraine in, but then the West uh, can change its mind. A new president of the United States might uh, uh, move away from any commitments made by his or her predecessor, and the same can happen to European leaders. So I think that if we are talking about uh, Ukrainian neutrality, uh, it should be a choice made uh, by the Ukrainian people and uh, the Ukrainian leadership in exchange for something. And I think that this something uh, should probably be a more rapid integration of Ukraine uh, into European Union structures, and not necessarily 
well, full membership, I think it will take uh, a lot of time, but uh, maybe a clear roadmap, some kind of a schedule uh, that would uh, keep Ukrainians motivated. Because uh, for me, one of the problems here is that uh, uh, we cannot end this conflict uh, with the Ukrainians feeling that they have been defeated. Uh, if it happens, uh, it would have a very uh, significant uh, negative uh, impact uh, on the Ukrainian moods and the Ukrainian politics. There's quite a bit of talk at the moment uh, in Western capitals about who is a potential mediator, maybe the wrong word, but someone who's able to talk to the Russian leadership, the Ukrainian leadership, to shuttle between them. Uh, there's some talk of potentially uh, Beijing, of, of uh, Xi Jinping doing that, although I, we see, I think, little appetite from the Chinese to get involved. Do you have any thoughts about who might be in a position to play that role, even if for now it's unlikely to yield much? Well, I think, first of all, uh, it will be uh, an important element of the whole process, because I can hardly see how Putin and Zelensky can sit together and discuss uh, the problems in a friendly way. I think that uh, at least at the initial stage, a third-party mediation uh, could be helpful and appropriate. Uh, Chairman Xi, well, he has certain advantages in the sense that uh, China has good relations with uh, both Russia and Ukraine. China tries not to take sides uh, in this conflict. Uh, it might elevate the status of uh, uh, Chairman Xi as a global leader, as a person who takes a responsible approach to uh, global problems. But uh, I can understand why China is reluctant uh, to get in, because uh, definitely there are many risks involved. Uh, and uh, it is very difficult uh, to be equally distanced from Moscow and Kyiv. Uh, so my take is that uh, probably it would be more appropriate to involve uh, uh, a former states person. I always argued that uh, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel might be a, a good choice because uh, she signed uh, the Minsk agreements. Uh, she tried uh, to implement the agreements. She knows the problem. She has empathy uh, and uh, she's uh, respected in Moscow, in Kyiv. Uh, she has good, at least I think she has good personal relations with President Putin. Uh, so a person like uh, Angela Merkel might be right to work on the issue. Of course, I can also imagine that uh, there might be institutions, uh, uh, well, the United Nations, uh, for instance, uh, uh, or OECE or other institutions that can also play a role. Uh, but I think that personalities uh, at this juncture are more important than institutions because you need to have this uh, human touch, you need to have uh, a degree of empathy to launch the process. Uh, later on, of course, uh, an institutional engagement will also be very important. You mentioned earlier that it's battlefield dynamics that will likely shape how much space there is for the two sides to look for some sort of compromise. And at the moment, they're headed the other way, that, as you say, both sides believe for now they can gain more by fighting. But if you think Western capitals making policy, is there anything that they can do to change that dynamic? I mean, well, I think that uh, definitely uh, there are ways uh, in which... Uh, uh, external players can affect the situation. Uh, first of all, I do believe that uh, we should uh, 
try to separate the nuclear issue from this conflict to the extent possible. Uh, regional uh, conflicts should not affect the nuclear dimension of uh, relations between Russia and the West. It has always been the case during the Cold War, and I think that we should maintain it to the extent possible, uh, which implies that uh, we should drop all this uh, uh, talk about uh, potential escalation to the nuclear level. Uh, we should uh, maintain uh, channels of communication open, and uh, I think that uh, the United States uh, has uh, uh, made the right decision to uh, offer Russia additional channels of communications between Pentagon and the Russian Ministry of Defense. I would go even further. I think that uh, U.S.-Russian negotiations on strategic arms control should go on. They should not be kept hostage to the crisis because they are very important for all of us, not just for the two countries, but for the rest of the world. So that is the first thing which I guess is important uh, to maintain and to preserve. Uh, second, uh, I think that uh, it is important to demonstrate uh, a degree of flexibility, especially when we're talking about sanctions. Uh, because in Russia, the perception is that uh, it is uh, quite easy uh, to impose sanctions. It is uh, practically impossible to lift sanctions. And I think that uh, this perception uh, has to be challenged. Uh, so the West should demonstrate that uh, depending on uh, Russia's behavior, it might uh, uh, apply more sanctions or it might uh, uh, lift some sanctions. So, Andrei, the first part of that seems clear enough, that they are threatening extra sanctions if Russia's uh, war continues. But it's much less clear what Russia would have to do to have the Western sanctions that have recently been imposed, what Russia would have to do to get those lifted? Well, at least, you know, I would suggest that uh, okay, maybe my expectations uh, are not very high. And I set a low bar for the Russian behavior, but I would say that even a ceasefire would be already a major step forward if it is something that can be maintained. You know, if people stop dying, if people stop being killed, uh, that would already be a major step forward. Again, uh, I understand that for many, uh, this is not enough uh, to reward Russia. Uh, this is not enough uh, to uh, lift uh, any sanctions. Uh, but uh, I think the more flexibility is demonstrated by the West, the better it is. Perhaps then some sort of gradual lift. Yeah, of course, very gradual. I don't want to say that, uh, you know, you have to lift all the sanctions at the same time. And I think it's not possible in any case. Uh, but uh, uh, some kind of action, reaction uh, cycle should be uh, in place uh, here. Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, to the extent possible, uh, we should uh, maintain other lines of uh, communication, maybe on second track level. Here I'm biased because I myself represent uh, the second track uh, level, but I think that maybe some solutions uh, should be looked uh, for at this level to start with, and then we can get back to the, uh, to the first track or 1.5 track. Uh, unfortunately, many lines of communication were broken, and I think that's not good. Uh, but uh, it is a difficult uh, situation, and uh, I think that uh, uh, maybe you know, each of us uh, should... Uh, I should uh, think about uh, what other ideas, what uh, suggestions, proposals can be brought to the table. 
uh, because uh, I'm afraid that uh, the current discussions uh, are too loaded with, uh, with politics. It's understandable, uh, but uh, it is not always helpful. Another core aspect of Western policy that we've talked about is arming Ukraine. So U.S. NATO members have already, I think, you know, 17,000 or so anti-tank weapons, including Javelin missiles, come through Poland and Romania. And there's talk now of trying to get fighter jets in. But given the mindset in the Kremlin and given the fear that they have of a NATO intervention, how could some of these things be interpreted? So whether it's sort of volunteers from NATO countries filtering into Ukraine, I mean, could that be seen as some sort of covert advance? Arms convoys coming to Ukraine from NATO states, is that as intervention? NATO troop buildups that we've talked about on, on NATO's eastern flank or troop movements, even to manage refugee flows at the border, could that be seen as a precursor to intervention? Could weapons depots in neighboring states... Uh, that are supplying Ukraine? Could they be seen by Moscow as legitimate targets? I mean, are there areas that, in particular, Western capitals need to be careful of because of the perception of what they're doing in Moscow? Uh, well, that's exactly why uh, communication lines between uh, uh, Western uh, ministries of defense and uh, the Russian general staff are so important because uh, they should allow the sides uh, to get a better understanding of red lines. I don't think that uh, the uh, supplies of weapons uh, to Ukraine uh, constitutes uh, a red line like that. But uh, uh, if uh, there are some aircraft uh, operating from Poland uh, entering the Ukrainian airspace uh, and uh, uh, entering uh, a fight with the Russian aircraft, I think that might be uh, interpreted as Kazos uh, Belly. So, I think that uh, there should be a common understanding uh, of what constitutes a direct involvement. And uh, uh, I think that it can be uh, reached such an understanding uh, on both sides uh, if uh, they uh, have uh, uh, contacts uh, and uh, if they discuss these issues. Uh, in any case, you know, I frankly believe that uh, the Western military assistance uh, to Ukraine has uh, more symbolic rather than direct military meaning. Uh, it is not likely to change uh, dramatically uh, the situation on the ground, uh, but uh, symbolically it uh, demonstrates that uh, Ukraine uh, relies uh, on uh, sympathy and uh, uh, support uh, from, from the West. Although Western weapons may not help Ukraine defeat Russia. It can help the Ukrainians hold out for much longer, particularly anti-aircraft weapons, and even more so if the West gives Ukraine fighter jets, for example. So it could change battlefield dynamics in making the war much more protracted, in making resistance much fiercer, in making things much more difficult for Moscow and Russian casualties much heavier. Well, in theory, yes. Again, you, I don't know what exactly uh, is happening with this assistance, to what extent uh, it uh, can uh, be used by, by Ukraine, given the Russian overwhelming superiority in the airspace. I think it would be increasingly more difficult uh, over time to render such assistance to Ukraine if the fighting uh, goes on. But uh, we'll see. It's hard to tell right now. 
And another thing that's uh, happening in Western capitals is sort of talk of regime change. I mean, it's not among Western leaders, it's parliamentarians, commentators, you know, talk of prospects for President Putin being ousted, losing office. Uh, what, what do you make of, of that? I think it would be counterproductive. This is exactly what the Russian leadership has always maintained, that uh, it's even not about Russia's security, it's about Russia's survival. Uh, and besides, you know, I don't see any way how the West uh, can uh, really uh, assist uh, regime change in Russia. Uh, I think that any attempts at a regime change are likely to be counterproductive. Andrei, could I ask one last uh, question, um, which is sort of how um, how is this, you know, you're uh, one of the most respected analysts on President Putin's foreign policy, have been working on this for many, many years uh, interpreting and even advising, in, in some cases, the Russian parliament and, and Russian politicians about foreign policy. How has this past couple of weeks in which the logic, as you've described, the logic in the Kremlin just seems to diverge very starkly from your own logic? The calculations, again, have been proved very quickly to be wrong. I mean, how, how has that felt over the past couple of weeks? Well, it, it's really awful. I mean, that... Uh... Uh, the world uh, I was used to is completely shattered, uh, and I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, personally, it is very painful, uh, and uh, it also implies that uh, everyone has to show his or her true colors, because it's very difficult to remain impartial to what's going on. You know, it now touches all of us. It is becoming very personal. You know, we all have friends in Ukraine. We have colleagues and partners there. We have relatives uh, in Ukraine. So it's a family affair, and that makes it uh, even more painful. It's not a country uh, far away. Uh, of course, you know, this country, uh, also people there also suffer, but uh, Ukraine is just next door. It's very difficult uh, to accept what is going on and uh, you know I think that uh, the first uh, impulse is just uh, to, to reject this reality but uh, it is upon us and we have to live there. Andrei I really very much appreciate you coming on really thanks for, for joining us. Well thank you thank you Richard and uh, let's stay in touch. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. We've been talking to Andrei Kortanov, who's the Director General of the Russian International Affairs Council in Moscow. Andrei is also a Crisis Group trustee. You can find all of Crisis Group's work, including on the Ukraine war, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks very much, as ever, to our producers, Sam Mennick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all our listeners. Please feel free to get in touch with any questions, comments, leave us a positive rating or review if you like the show, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.